All right, good morning. Um, my name is Mike. Um, I'm a member here and I'm a part of the Longford Centre Mitchell community. Um, and it's really great to get the chance to speak to you this morning about this passage in 1 John. Um, I've got a few questions to start. So, you know, everyone always loves a bit of awkward question answer session. But all you need to do is put your hands up so it's really easy. Um, so who here reads, watches or listens to the news once a day? Okay, cool. So we have a fairly engaged group of people. Um, second question's a bit trickier. Um, how good are you? Um, actually, how good are you is a hard one to answer with putting your hands up, isn't it? Put your hands up if you think you are good at remembering things that you read in the news. Okay, so everyone is consuming the news, but recall a little bit lower. Okay, cool. I'll bear that in mind and I'll go slowly for you. Um, so Liz will tell you if you speak to her that I love reading the news wherever I can find it. Um, it doesn't even have to be recent. I'll go back years or decades to find interesting stories because they can teach me things that are useful in the here and now. Um, so here's a few stories that I've unearthed recently. Now back in 1991, sorry I'm finding it a bit awkward with the stand here, let me just move it. <laughs> Cool. Back in 1991, during the close of uh, the first war in Iraq, a group of American soldiers was left stranded by the government. As it turns out, US businessman Donald Trump heard about the predicament and dispatched his private jet to bring them back. I hadn't heard that one before. That one made me think quite a bit. Now, on the subject of Trump, did you know that Pope Francis actually gave Trump an endorsement before the 2016 presidential election. I must confess, I don't often follow what the Pope says, but that one surprised me when I read about it. Actually, there's a weirder endorsement story for Trump, Hillary Clinton. According to a transcript in the Wall Street uh, Journal, a dinner address she gave in 2013, she said she wanted Donald Trump or someone like him to run for office because his type of businessman was confident and couldn't be bought off. I bet she regretted saying that during the election. In fact, all this reading really changes my view about Donald Trump. But here's the thing. All three of those stories were fake. The Clinton story was published on a website originally called conservativestate.com. It gained 481,000 shares on Facebook. However, in an odd twist, it turns out conservativestate.com is a Macedonian website run to sell adverts. The story about the Pope was run on a website called WTOE5. That sounds like a very integral journalistic organization, professional strong sounding news station. As a result of its strong journalistic credentials, that article was shared 960,000 times. Except that story also wasn't true. WTO5 even goes as far as to have a banner on their homepage pointing out that all their news articles are made up. It didn't stop a million people sharing it. As you might now have guessed, there's a bit of a theme going on here. The Trump airplane story is also false. It does have a small ring of truth to it. Trump owned an airline that went bust and its planes were contracted by the US government to help pay off some of the airline's debts. Um, hardly makes Trump sound like a national hero, does it? This story actually came from a real person um, I hadn't heard of, but some people might have, a US political commentator called Sean Hannity, who still stands by the truth of this story, despite it being demonstrably false, with multiple or maybe even hundreds of witnesses to the actual truth. 2016 was the year that fake news itself hit the headlines. 
The ability of falsehoods to spread rapidly online continues to have significant impact on the world, most notably in politics and economics. If we hear the wrong thing and believe it, it can cause significant change to our worldview, our behavior, who we trust, who we dislike. Those who wish to manipulate or control other people can achieve significant control and harm without ever resorting to violence purely by using believable lies. We're adults though, right? We no longer believe a stork brings new children. We no longer, sorry Michael, believe Santa Claus. So how come some lies about big, important, and sometimes distant things still seem so convincing to many people? Well, the fourth chapter of John's first letter begins with a warning and instruction. And it says how to recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. John is concerned that the people who he is writing to in the early church will hear a false message. They'll believe it and they'll go astray. He links this false message with a spirit he terms the Antichrist. He also tells people that there is a split between them and the world. If we're to continue learning about God, we need to understand how we can trust what we're told. We need to know how to spot people who want to lie to us to change our minds. And we need the understand, understanding of how we can build our church by relating to the world, even if the world can follow or spread these lies. In order to do this, we're going to look at three forms that this spirit of falsehood takes and how each of those forms is beaten by the spirit of truth. Now, the first form the spirit of falsehood takes is in false prophets and the Antichrist. I put these two together because of how John presents the Antichrist. Look with me at verse 3. It says, Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. John's description here is a lot less dramatic sounding than the Antichrist commonly described in other literature and film. The Antichrist props up in a multitude of films. You've got horror films like The Omen, uh, TV, American Horror Story, a comedy, Adam Sandler's Little Nicky, and uh, South Park. In one of the more peculiar twists I found whilst researching this sermon, it turns out that in the comic series The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, um, the Antichrist is revealed to actually be Harry Potter. Um, well, none of those things are really what John's talking about here. Instead, what John describes as the Antichrist is a lot more literal. John reminds us that Christ came in the flesh. He was fully man. He felt what we feel. He experienced what we experienced. His torture and death hurt him, and his sacrifice for us was real. But the Antichrist, the false prophet, the spirit of falsehood, says no. Jesus wasn't a man. He was a spirit, a ghost, an apparition, an angel. Anything to get us to think that maybe he wasn't flesh and blood. If we start to believe that, well, maybe it changes what we think about Jesus. Maybe Jesus doesn't understand us. Maybe he didn't feel any pain. Maybe his death meant nothing. Maybe his resurrection meant nothing. Now, do you see why this spirit, this false prophet, is called the Antichrist? It literally opposes Christ. It is against what he stood for and what he died for. John wrote these words, most likely targeting a specific group at the time called the Gnostics, spelt with a G like gnome. What Gnostics love to do is take the Christian message and twist it just a little. They hold to a belief 
that says all of this, these buildings, the earth, our bodies, are made of matter. And matter is inherently bad. It's a prison, it's a cage, something that traps our real selves, our spirits. In the Gnostic worldview, spirit is good. Spirit is God. And so Jesus must have been a spirit. God wouldn't let himself be a man. Now also don't assume just because the word Gnostic has been consigned to the history books that that belief is gone. Have you encountered people who doubt and question Jesus' historical existence? Have you encountered people who assume that their behavior through the week is irrelevant as long as they cleanse their spirit once a week in religious ritual? Now those are basically modern day Gnostics. Now our friends who are Muslim will also hold a different view of Jesus. They believe and will preach to the fact that Jesus was the opposite of what the Gnostics said. They will say he is fully man, but not in any way God, for the same kind of reason. God would not lower himself to our gooey, sticky, frail bodies, to being matter, to being stuff. He's God. He's clearly above all of that. Well, in this way, both of these groups rob Christ of the very thing that makes him Christ. The fact that he is Emmanuel, God with us. God coming to meet those made in his image and walk among them as equals. God coming to give his life up for us. The false prophets spread a false message so that we will follow their rules about God. Think that he is distant, that he cannot be known. And if we believe them, we lose the connection Christ died for. However, this isn't one of those horror films about the Antichrist. Nor is this the world the Gnostics believed in. John doesn't say now is our time to fight the Antichrist, to take the Antichrist as a threat, to be scared, to cower. Look with me back in verse 4. There he says, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Not will, have. It's done. How? Because Jesus, Son of God, came down from heaven, fully God and fully man. From the point you began to believe in Christ, the Antichrist lost power over you. Like it says at the end of verse 6, this is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. What is our concern then? It's done. Well, it's that we may be saved, but so many people right now are not. So many people are still subject to these lies. And that's where the second form of the spirit of falsehood comes in. The world. In verse 5, it says, they are from the world. And it's referring to the false prophets and antichrist spirits in the previous verses. Then it says, they speak from the viewpoint of the world. So they understand the world. They understand people in general. They know what makes them, us, everyone, tick. What we like, what we dislike, what gets our backs up. Finally, it says, because of this, the world listens to them. So, the world listens to something from their viewpoint. That's hardly a revelation. Isn't that a good thing? Shouldn't we be trying to speak from the viewpoint of the world if we want to communicate to other human beings? Well, think back to the fake news examples at the start. 
the stories were maybe a bit outlandish. They weren't really that interesting. I'm sorry, I did do some digging, but they were the best I could muster. Um, they were sourced on honest-looking websites that turned out to be fake. And yet they were shared way more than you'd expect any story on a small Macedonian website to be. Why? Well, it's because of the viewpoint they presented. If you support Donald Trump, and I'm not having a problem with that either way, you will want to hear stories that make him out to be the person you think he is. Similarly, you're going to want to hear other people agree with you, endorsing him for office, and you might want to hear negative things about anyone who opposes him. Wanting those things isn't wrong. Wanting someone you support to win something isn't wrong. There might be other reasons it's wrong, but just wanting it for that reason isn't wrong. It's not wrong that I want to hear good stories about my former university, or about my friends' businesses, or my favorite artists. I want to hear good things. I want to build up the opinions I already have. The problem comes when I ignore obvious signs that what I am reading isn't true. Is the Pope really likely to endorse a US presidential candidate? Is a Macedonian website likely to get the scoop on a US military blunder from the early 90s? Now, if I then believe this and share it, I do two things. Firstly, I take the bait. I confirm what I already thought. This is a known psychological issue, which you may have encountered, called confirmation bias. You are more likely to believe something that you already want to be true. And secondly, once we share that, once we put it out on our online profiles, send it to a friend, we are complicit. We're helping it spread, and so now we take some of the share for anything that might go wrong as a result. When it comes to some conspiracy theories, the problem might be a political shock. With some of the darker conspiracy theories, it's resulted in actual or psychological harm to people. But what happens if we believe and share a false view of Jesus? Well, we become complicit in people not following him. This is why the world and the Antichrist are so linked. The Antichrist needs to spread a false message. The world gives the tools to do that. If you walked out on the street today and say, anybody who follows Jesus dies instantly, people will say, that's an odd opinion. You're wrong. I've seen them. They're all in that church. They're fine. And no one will listen to you. Your message goes nowhere. But walk out and say, anybody who follows Jesus becomes a bigot. And you'll have crowds of people eager to confirm their pre-existing biases and signal their virtues to others. And they'll follow you on social media. They'll applaud you. They'll share you. They'll tweet you. They'll Instagram you. They'll social networks that I haven't heard of because I'm getting too old for this yet. You. Um, the amount of noise the modern world generates can be a distraction from the truth we try and live in and try to teach. And people will latch onto that for their own ends and to support the things they already believe in. However, it's also important to know that like the fake news stories, these things aren't just there to distract us, to cast our minds to different things. They're trying to change our minds. They're trying to bring us over to their point of view. And so there's a risk for Christians as well as non-Christians in the fake news if that fake news supports false prophets. The world speaks from the world's viewpoint. So, 
what viewpoint should we speak from? John writes, the one in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Uh, That's there in verse 4. That's why you who believe, you here today who say you believe, have overcome the Antichrist. John says, whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God doesn't. When I first read this statement, it made me quite uncomfortable. I'm not going to lie. Here I was, working on a sermon where I'd already written a section about confirmation bias, and I had to look at a line that I didn't like to agree with. The middle of verse 6 says, whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Now, my first reading was this. Does this mean anybody who I explain the gospel to and doesn't listen is not from God, is not loved by God, and will not be saved? That's a pretty tough thing to confront. Well, one important thing when reading the Bible is to look at the whole Bible rather than picking one verse and basing all your views on that. So I decided to look around and explore. I looked to the other writing of John, his gospel, figuring that he'd be most consistent with himself in this case. And so I read this. This is a quote from Jesus that you can find in John 15. Uh, It says this, Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. This is Jesus saying, Anybody who keeps his commands remains in his love. Now, this concept of remaining in Jesus might seem a little strange to us for the language, but this crops up throughout John's gospel. And the context of being in God's love means you are saved by that love. So we have to look when John in 1 John 4 talks about listening and who listens This is listening as in making an active choice, just in the same way as someone has an active choice to keep Jesus' commands, as he commands in John 15. Those who hear and choose not to listen are making an active choice to refuse God at this point in their lives. But that doesn't mean they're lost. If you care for them, it's vital that you keep speaking so that they keep having the chance to listen and to know God through your words. And this also helps turn things around when we don't feel confident to speak the truth in love to those close to us. We can often feel we lack this confidence because we're weak or our faith is weak or because we don't know enough or we haven't learned enough. And maybe we're straight worried what people will think of what we say. Well, right here, is the reason to have confidence in what you say. If you speak the truth about God, you're speaking from God. You don't need eloquence or wit or turns of phrase or the smart way to do things. You just need truth. Why? Because Jesus, Son of God, came down from heaven, fully God and fully man. Keep telling this truth and those who are from God will listen. Like it says in verse 6, This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Okay, 
I said I'd speak about three forms of the spirit of falsehood, but we've pretty much finished the passage. I keep jumping onto verse six. That's because I want to tie what we've already said together and talk about a third form the spirit of falsehood can take. And what I think is its purest form. It's as a spirit that makes us lie to ourselves. What do I mean by this? Well, we've talked about the Antichrist. For those who were here last month, uh, I think about five or six weeks ago, you might recall Greg um, preaching on 1 John 2, where verse 22 says, Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. This essentially tells us anybody who denies Jesus is the Antichrist. How do we deny Jesus? We deny Jesus when we make him less in our lives, when we try to put other things in his place, and when we hold up religious experiences ahead of actually knowing him. Making him less in our lives, in other words, ignoring him. This relates back to the previous point. Do you speak of Jesus? Most people will naturally talk about the things that loom largest on their life or which are really easy to talk about. It's why people actually go to the weather when they're not sure what to say. It's big, it's obvious, everyone's experienced it, and it's rarely controversial. Jesus can be pretty big and obvious. Do you think everyone's experienced them? Well, the Bible suggests they have. It teaches that God created everyone. But is he controversial? Oh, yes. But don't forget, Jesus was controversial in his time too. Read any of the four biographies of Jesus' life in the Bible, we call them Gospels, and that's made very clear. You need Jesus to loom larger over your life than anything else. That's how you get past your fear of talking about him. Well, how can you do that? Read truth. Read the Bible. How about putting other things in Jesus' place? Anybody here ever done that? Work, kids, relationships, money, alcohol, sex. None of these things are bad of themselves. God created the world and ordained everything in it. But the things have their intended use and their obvious abuse. If you find yourself desperate for emotional or physical relationships, check where your relationship with God is at. What have you shared with him lately? He can provide for you better than friends, family, or partners, and he won't let you down. That means you can be a better friend, family member, or partner to those who rely on you. Are you troubled about money or work? Do you think those things might be your savior? Jesus says to trust him for everything. And sometimes you might have to give some of that stuff or that control away to let him rule your life instead of your job or your bank account. But guess what? When you do that, you realize you need even less and you become generous, giving to those who are needy. Those are just two examples. Now maybe in core groups or with any Christian friends you meet with this week, you can explore what else you put in Jesus' place and how turning that around might change your life in amazing ways. But okay, let's not get too Gnostic and just assume earthly things are bad. What else can we put in Jesus' place? Religion. Yep, religion. 
Now, before I explain myself a bit more, I want to give you someone else's view on the situation. This morning isn't all about me, strangely. It's a verse from a track by one of my favorite Christian artists called Beautiful Eulogy. I'll add the disclaimer. After I quote them, I will tell you not to trust everything Christian artists say. But this is not hypocritical. So listen to the words, and hopefully it will all become clear. This is from a track called Symbols and Signs, and the whole song will play after the end of the service if you're interested. I think it's really great, um, inspiring music. Um, it's originally uh, a rap, but I'm not nearly hip-hop enough, so I'm going to read this out more like a poem, uh, because it kind of fits that too. So listen with me. Are you the kind that's completely consumed by symbols and signs? If you are, that's fine. But don't you find it interesting how most of the time your self-interpreting seems to coincide with what's deep inside your heart's desires? Seems rather convenient, doesn't it? I'm not saying that God can't do it. Not saying that God won't do it. That might very well be the case. I'm simply making an observation of how much weight you place on it what seems to be at stake and how much of your faith is actually banking on it, and how much of your mysticism is mixed with your religious philosophic system. Sometimes what we believe to be true from our supernatural pursuits is actually a fluke, a series of events that's used to distract you from the truth. But I'll give you a sign that's obvious. One of the most supernatural acts is that God, through his word, has revealed everything pertaining to life in godliness. There's this idea that an individual is somehow more spiritual if they take these signs and symbols, take what's normally invisible, and make it simple. But I say the mark of maturity is the one who reads God's word and understands, and allows that to govern their decisions and prospective plans. So, do you see what I, or they, are getting at here? Knowing God, trusting God, praying to God, all good things. Hoping for healings, for miracles, for visions, all good things. But putting a condition on it and saying, God, if you don't do this, I don't know if I can believe anymore. Saying, God, if you care about me, you'll heal me, or you'll heal my family member, or you'll help my child, or any other good thing you might want, becomes wrong when you make it a condition of continuing in your faith. The same goes for experiences of God. If you say somebody must have some sort of supernatural experience to be a Christian, if you say somebody's faith isn't strong enough and that's why their prayers aren't being answered, all of these things are putting religion, felt experience between God and his people, and you don't want to be the one to do that. And all of this happens because we fail to do what it says in 1 John 4 verse 1. Test the spirits to see that they are from God. These ideas don't just come from nowhere. They come from what we're exposed to. That means if there's a preacher online, a Christian movie, novels, music, you must look at what they say and contrast it with what the Bible says before you choose whether it's good advice or not. I am not saying everything that uses symbolism, metaphor, story, music, characters, or emotion to try and present concepts of God must be wrong. Much of it is meant with an honest heart, and it may be helpful. You can see what's being presented. You can take it as it's intended and continue with your faith strengthened, sometimes. But don't assume you are impervious to distraction. 
to rewriting your image of God to something more manageable, more pleasant, more in line with your own views. Just like earlier with confirmation bias and fake news, we want to be people who follow God, not people who follow John Piper or Billy Graham or Matt Redman or Jesus Culture or even Beautiful Eulogy. What you must remember is that the Trinity is sufficient in everything and the Bible open to us by the Holy Spirit teaches us this. So, in conclusion, the spirit of falsehood appears as the Antichrist and tries to mislead us about the nature of God and where our salvation comes from. The spirit of falsehood influences the world to speak to its own desires, which are contrary to God and oppose his creation. Finally, the spirit of falsehood can deceive us into denying, replacing, or adding to Jesus instead of accepting him for who he is. We can confront this by speaking the truth of the Bible in the confidence that those who listen to us are from God and will be saved. We can test spirits, prophets, and our own heart's desires with the living word of God. We can trust the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, which is in all of us. How does that come to be? It comes because what the Bible teaches us is true. Jesus, Son of God, came down from heaven, fully God and fully man. He taught, healed, performed miracles, raised the dead. He was given up to evil, abandoned by his friends, and died on a cross. After three days, he rose, death defeated, and appeared to his disciples. He charged them like he charges us to spread the news and the Spirit was given to them ahead of his return. In commemoration of his sacrifice, we do as he commanded on the night before his death. We break bread and eat it in remembrance, and we drink from the cup of his suffering. And this meal is no longer the Last Supper, but is a meal that anybody who knows Jesus can take part in. Whether you're a member of Redeemer, have been coming here for a while, or are just visiting, if you trust Jesus, this meal is for you. And it is only for followers of Jesus. We don't want people here to make a statement of something that they don't believe in just yet. We're going to sing in a moment. So during the first two songs, just come up, take some bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and eat. And remember Jesus whilst you do. If you've never done this before, Maybe this morning here is where you start. Know the truth and join Jesus' family. Let's pray to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood.